Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Today's podcast is presented by EPRA, the European Public Real Estate Association. Facing global megatrends like green transition and aging population, how will listed real estate contribute to a sustainable future and financial security for Europe? Today's episode is presented by Equinor. Evolving into a broad energy company, harvesting power from the strong winds out at sea is one of our solutions for the European energy transition. The best news in terms of dealing with this COVID pandemic is the announcement by Pfizer and BioNTech that their vaccine protects against 90% of cases. That's the best news, I would say, after the election of Joe Biden for the United States. Welcome to EU Confidential, the number one European politics podcast. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor in Brussels. And you just heard the voice of Peter Piot, the renowned Belgian virus expert, who's now advising the European Commission president on COVID-19. He's our special guest on the podcast this week, and I really recommend sticking around for a fascinating interview. As you heard there, Piot breaks down the big news of the week, the prospect of a highly effective vaccine being available soon. He also talks more generally about what we know about the coronavirus that we didn't know at the start, how we can better fight it, and how we need to prepare for more pandemics. In fact, it's been quite the week for news since we last spoke. As Piot mentioned, we also have a declared winner of the US presidential election. And we had a deal in Brussels that brings the new EU budget and coronavirus recovery fund a step closer. So let's dive into all of that, starting with our podcast panel. So it's welcome back to Reem Montaz in Paris. Hi, Reem. Hello, hello. Did you have a good week off? I really did. Really needed good. it. Good. Well, it was very quiet. Nothing much happened. So you didn't, you didn't miss anything. <laughs> I'm uh, sorry to have left you in a lurch like that. <laughs> no, no, not at all. We had uh, we had plenty of people uh, happy to, to jump in, but good to have you back. Uh, Lily Beyer is with us again from our uh, Brussels politics team. Hi, Lily. Hi, everyone. And Matt Karnichnik joins us, our chief Europe correspondent based in Berlin. Hi, Matt. Hello. So uh, we talked uh, in a special edition of the podcast last week uh, about the US presidential election. We kind of thought we knew the way it was heading and that turned out to be the case. But the winner had not been declared at that point. There had been no official reaction to the result itself from European leaders at that point. So European leaders have been um, coming out. Some of them have now spoken uh, to, to Joe Biden. Reem, let's start with you because we didn't have you last week. What If you could sum up the French reaction, what's been the, their response both to, to Joe Biden's victory and to the way that uh, Donald Trump is dealing with it or not dealing with it? You know, it's interesting because it's actually not straightforward um, in France. There's definitely a sigh of relief in the sense that Elysee officials tell us they're very keen to see the United States of America come back into the multilateral agencies. On the other hand, you know, there are, there are two perhaps points on which there's a bit of trepidation. One, there's trepidation on sort of the current 
completely unprecedented situation that they're having to deal with, which is current U.S. President Trump not having conceded yet. And, you know, it's hard for foreign leaders to have to to, to navigate that and to, to manage that for the next few months, really, the next couple of months. And there's also, you know, they're cautiously optimistic about a Biden administration, but they're not also sort of jumping for joy and saying, oh, you know, thank God we're like back to normal. And it's something that Macron has actually been saying pretty consistently for the past few years, that no matter who is president in the U.S., the U.S. is no longer, will no longer be as engaged as it used to be. And that's why the Europeans need to really take on board his ideas of strategic autonomy. And they're still on that line. Mm. Uh, Matt, Angela Merkel spoke to Joe Biden and also had quite a, quite an interesting uh, statement. She actually came out and gave a statement on the U.S. reaction, which was notable for what she did say and what she didn't say. I imagine she's pretty pleased, right? Yes. I mean, she didn't mention the elephant in the room, Donald Trump, with whom she's had very difficult relationship, obviously. And that was in itself significant. I don't believe the two have talked in uh, months and may never speak again. So there was no love lost there. I, I did think it was interesting, though, that she decided to make a special announcement in, in the way that she did. And though she does sort of speak fairly frequently to the press, it's often at these kind of protocol situations where you have a, a visiting leader or it's on a very specific subject where she'll take questions from the press, be it COVID or something else. And in this case, she didn't take any questions. She gave the statement and she said all of the right things, you know, I think from an American perspective about the transatlantic relationship uh, and how important it had been to Germany and so forth. But it felt a little bit to me like like she was speaking about the old relationship and that relationship doesn't really exist anymore in, in that forum. And since she's going to be leaving soon herself, I think that there's still a lot of question marks about where the transatlantic relationship, in particular the U.S.-German relationship, is going to go under President Biden and beyond. So, Lily, let's talk a bit about the Central and Eastern European uh, reaction. We talked about that again last week, once again, before the, you know, the result had been officially or officially, of course, is a controversial word these days. But before the world, before the result had been generally accepted and declared. But now that, you know, the world in general, with, with some exceptions, has congratulated Joe Biden, accepted his victory, how are they dealing with that? What's their messaging? Have they outright congratulated him? Yes. So the Polish and Hungarian governments have both sent messages of congratulations to Joe Biden. But there are a few layers here. So while officially, for example, Viktor Orban has sent a letter to Biden, unofficially in the pro-government Hungarian media, we're still seeing uh, a certain promotion of questioning of the results in the U.S. So I, I do see some signaling to Orban's core voters that um, you know, we're, we're still on the Trump side. We, we still see Trump's uh, perspective. But I think that uh, officially there is a recognition that Biden has won and that uh, they need to build some sort of relationship with the future White House. Uh, what we've seen from Slovenia has been incredibly interesting. So Prime Minister Janis Janza there has been uh, retweeting conspiracy theories, questioning the outcome of the election. He's the only prime minister, I believe, who has not congratulated or uh, formally accepted the result of the election. 
And that really sets him apart from the leaderships in uh, Poland and Hungary. Right. And we've seen the, the Slovenians trying to do or other Slovenians trying to do what they would regard as, as damage control. The president of Slovenia, the European commissioner from Slovenia, uh, both very publicly congratulating uh, Biden and obviously quite concerned about how their standing will be with the new um, administration. I noticed the phrasing, at least initially from, you know, top Polish and Hungarian leaders was also quite neat in that it congratulated Biden on his successful presidential campaign, but didn't quite actually congratulate him on winning the presidency. So there does appear to be some very uh, careful phrasing um, going on at the moment. Let's um, leave the... Uh, U.S. presidential election for a moment, because I'm sure we'll be talking about it plenty in the months ahead and focus on something that happened uh, here in Brussels this week. Uh, Big news. Lily, bring us up to date. The EU budget and recovery fund have been kind of on hold to an extent since the big agreement in July among EU leaders. But we finally had uh, a breakthrough of sorts this week. Right. So what happened and what happens next? Right. So I think perhaps some listeners uh, may not realize that when the July big deal was sealed after four days and four nights of uh, really difficult talks, that was not the end of the road because the bloc's long-term budget still needs to be signed off by the European Parliament and then it needs a final green light from the council. Um, so what has been happening since late August is that the Parliament and the council have been in negotiations because members of parliament really wanted to show that they also have a say in this deal and that they have influenced the outcome. So they were pushing for more money, um, especially for programs in areas such as health and research. Um, they finally did get a bit of extra money, 15 billion, which in the grand scheme of things is uh, not a lot, but they're quite happy with it. Um, it'll go mostly toward uh, the Horizon Europe Research Program, toward the health program and a few other things like education. But we are still not at the end. So the deal uh, caused a lot of relief across the block. Uh, I was speaking to uh, Budget Commissioner Johannes Hahn yesterday. He said that um, officials at the commission were incredibly relieved as well um, that this political deal is done. But the European Parliament still needs to vote. The council still needs to sign off. And there's still the matter of the 750 billion coronavirus recovery fund, which is a lot more complicated because in order to borrow money for that fund, not only does the council need to sign off, but national parliaments need to sign off as well. And this is very tricky. And while we wait, the commission cannot borrow money for the recovery fund, which a lot of countries, especially in the South, have really been waiting for. Sounds a little bit like the American election. Yeah, it's never the never-ending story. Never uh, yes, just when you think you've yeah, but in this case, Lily, also you have the the issue of uh, to bring it back to to Viktor Orban again, the possibility that uh, due to his objections to a separate measure, which is meant to link payouts from the EU budget to respect for the rule of law and allow a, a mechanism for those payouts to be stopped if um, the EU determines that the rule of law is not being upheld. So it is a separate measure, but he is threatening to block the budget if he's not happy with that measure, right? So, I mean, I know it's impossible to say definitively, but but how's that going to play out or how might that play out? Yeah, so this is the big guessing game in Brussels at the moment. Is Viktor Orban bluffing? 
uh, when he threatens to block both uh, the long-term budget and the recovery fund. Uh, for context, this is uh, 1.8 trillion euros worth of money, and any government can block the whole thing. So it's it's a very powerful sort of weapon. But I think from, from talking to officials, there's a lot of skepticism that he would go that far, in large part because Hungary itself uh, would really, really benefit from this cash. Right. And it would also put him in the position right across Europe of being the guy who's holding up badly needed uh, recovery funds at the time when, you know, the continent is in a deep recession. So that would be a bold move, certainly, to go that far. OK, well, lots for us to uh, keep track of in the weeks and months ahead. Uh, we'll leave it there for now. Reem, uh, Lily, Matt, we'll be back at the end briefly with uh, your recommendations for things to keep our listeners uh, engaged and entertained. But for now, thanks very much. And in just one minute, we'll bring you that interview with Peter Piot on the coronavirus. A message from Equinor. Offshore wind farms harvesting power from the strong winds out at sea are one of our solutions for Europe's energy transition. Our offshore wind farms in Europe already generate enough electricity to power the equivalent of one million homes. And we have developed the world's first floating wind farm, enabling the harvest of the winds in deeper waters. Now we are developing the world's largest offshore wind farm, Deutsche Bank in the UK North Sea. It alone can power 4.5 million homes. Offshore wind projects are getting bigger, and they are getting more complex. We in Equinor see a sea of opportunities off the coast of Europe to support the energy transition and an industrial renewal. Now let's get to our interview with Peter Piot. In many ways, he's the perfect guest to talk about the coronavirus. He's been working on viruses for decades. He co-discovered Ebola in the 1970s and later worked extensively on HIV-AIDS, including as boss of the UN programme UNAIDS. He's director of the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine and now also an advisor on COVID-19 to Ursula von der Leyen, the European Commission president. Piot also brings very personal experience to that role. He contracted the disease in early March, and he talked in the interview about how that changed his view on the virus. But first, we dove into the big news of the week. Well, the best news uh, in terms of uh, dealing with this uh, COVID pandemic is the announcement by Pfizer and BioNTech, a German company, that their uh, vaccine protects against 90% of cases for developing a symptomatic disease, illness. And that's that's the best news, I would say, after the election of Joe Biden for the United <laughs> States, uh, where I hope now that there will be some serious action taken by the federal government. And this vaccine is hopefully, you know, the first of a series that will show efficacy. Personally, I, uh, I thought it would rather be more on the uh, around 60%. Of protection, so that's really uh, beyond my expectations. And uh, if several other vaccines uh, are going to be in the same range, then we can really start thinking about going back to normal. However, there's still a few things that have to happen. One, these are preliminary results, so they have to be confirmed. And I have no doubt that that will be confirmed. Uh, what's equally important: there were no side effects that were uh, notable. You know, that's uh, very important. But we need to know how long will this protection last? Will we need a, an annual injection or not? Will it work with older people? 
You know, that's uh, another question. People like, uh, in my case, where we had a already an infection before, will it also protect us? And then in the case of the Pfizer, the BioNTech vaccine, is the, there are logistic issues. Um, it has to be preserved at minus 80 degrees. So that's uh, dry ice. That's, that's really very cold. In contrast to the regular vaccines that are being used, that's uh, uh, fridge temperature. But, you know, logistic issues can be overcome. What's key now is that we follow the, the route for, uh, you know, approval of these vaccines, that there's good scrutiny, and then that uh, manufacturing is boosted. It seems that Pfizer can deliver already uh, tens of millions of doses of, within the next few months, as soon as there is an emergency authorization, but also that countries are getting ready. And that should be one of the priorities for the European Union, for each member state, that, you know, this is an, uh, a huge uh, logistic operation. And uh, uh, when you judge by the fiasco of test and trace in many countries, in many member states, that means that we really need to make an extra effort. This is nothing medical. This is about, you know, mobilizing people. You can't do it just with doctors and nurses, but there will be other people who will have to be trained, and that's pretty easy. The logistics, the supply chain, transport, the data management, uh, just name it. And uh, so we better all do some fire drills and uh, test the systems right now. Now, let me ask you a couple of kind of real layman's uh, questions. You mentioned that even if this news is as good as it appears, it would still be good to have other vaccines. Why is it important not just to have this one? Why can't we just kind of roll this one out across the world and be happy with that? No, I wouldn't mind if it's just one vaccine, but I think it's always safer to have several options because, uh, again, we're at very early phase and it could be that uh, vaccine A uh, works better with Older people or vaccine B protects for two years or 10 years or is easy to transport or cheaper. Uh, all these uh, elements are there. And it could also be that we have a first generation and then maybe a next generation. In general, in general, uh, the rule is that the first ones are not, you know, as good as often the, the second, you know, generation of uh, vaccines or, or drugs. But you have to start. The, the first ones are really, really important. And uh, for example, to make uh, international travel uh, possible. But before you see an impact at the population level, that's going to take time. And we will have to continue to respect some safety measures, wearing masks, some distancing. And in addition, I think we will soon have well, probably nothing but a, a small revolution in terms of testing where we could have rapid, simple tests that in five or 10 minutes can tell you I'm infected or not. So which would you can imagine that uh, at the entrance of a football stadium or before boarding a plane or go to the opera or whatever you want to do, that people can be tested. So technologies and, and, and science are really going to, to help us to get out of this nightmare. Mm. You mentioned, um, you know, what you called the fiasco of, of test and trace in a lot of countries and also that kind of missed opportunity, you know, when um, the prevalence of the virus uh, at least appeared to have receded. Uh, how do you explain that? How do you explain why that happened? Well, first of all, I think that nobody who has ever been confronted with a, um, a pandemic of this scale in, uh, 
in modern history. The last time on a massive scale was the Spanish flu, and then we didn't even have tests. We didn't even know what the virus was. That's one thing. Secondly, there are countries that have done it well. In Europe, when you look at Germany, uh, very early on, they developed a test. They distributed it. It was done in a very decentralized way because also of the federal system. It, you know, a very aggressive testing uh, and, and people had access to it. And, and that worked for quite a while. And certainly also in, um, in East Asia, Southeast Asia, good examples. But when you look at the UK, for example, yeah, they're a very centralist approach that clearly didn't work. And this is a, um, about logistics, coordination, communication, something that, um, you know, uh, you have to put in, in charge people who know that. That's not necessarily the strength of, let's say, neither the medical profession or the public health profession. And uh, I think also probably... A bit of complacency during the summer. Uh, we were all very happy to come out of the lockdowns and the, the figures went down. And, uh, you know, was, um, yeah, was not uh, appreciated what it could do. Even if, and, and here in defense of, of, of the European Commission, on the 15th of July, the Commission issued a statement encouraging member states to get ready for the, you know, when the winter comes to invest in testing and trace. I mean, it was, I, I reread it recently and, uh, you know, it could have been released uh, yesterday because it's all there, but it was not followed. And understandably also, because summer is tourism season, as so people were kind of fed up with the, the lockdown, they wanted to, to go away, but we, we really wasted time, that's for sure. Mm. I was that kind of brings me to a question which I wondered about. Obviously, one of your roles now is as advisor to the European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen, and I just wonder if, in in a sense, you're advising the right person. If the Commission can't really do much, or what more can can be done at European level, or is this ultimately something for for national governments? Would your advice be better directed towards you know individual national governments and national leaders? Well, it's true that uh, health is not a competency of the European Union in contrast to, let's say, trade. I mean, health is not in there. And, uh, and for understandable reasons, and I think it's, uh, you know, because the healthcare systems are so specific to country. And uh, so that's the issue. But on the other hand, viruses don't know borders. There are, uh, you know, in Europe where we're so integrated, not only economically, but also the personal level and with densely populated, that it's important to have, to say the least, some well-coordinated action. So what the Commission has done um, is uh, where it does have competency, and that I think is uh, really, I, I, I would say, pretty historic, is this procurement, at, you know, agreements with uh, vaccine producers. And to make sure that every single member state, also the smaller ones, the poorer ones, will have access, equal access to whatever vaccine will come on the market. And, and these are still being negotiated. Three are being concluded and some others are now being discussed. But that, I think, is really uh, very important because there was a time that uh, four countries, was the Netherlands, Germany, France and Italy, were doing their own negotiations. And, uh, you know, I can understand from their perspective. But on the other hand, you know, we felt uh, from, you know, the commission side that if that's the case, it means that other countries will 
uh, really not benefit from it, and particularly the ones with less negotiating power. Uh, also, ensuring green uh, corridors, in other words, that transport of goods could continue during lockdown and during the fact when borders were in control, and also procurement, you know, in the spring of protective gear and so on, because some countries were was a shortage. That's another big difference with spring. Today, there are enough face masks, there are enough uh, respirators, oxygen and so on in Europe, and now also uh, procurement for, for tests. I'm also concerned about what's going on in what's called in the official jargon, the periphery, the Western Balkans, uh, Ukraine has a really bad epidemic, Moldova. There is so much interaction that uh, that's where there is a responsibility. But I hope that this will be a, a lesson for all of us that um, when it comes to epidemics and pandemics, you need strong international cooperation. And my understanding is that today there is far more appetite for doing that, for working together than in the spring peak. We, we need to be prepared now for the next pandemic already. And so taking the lessons. Mm, that's what I, I wondered. I've, I've seen that you've spoken before that we're almost in an era of pandemics now or, or could be. Do we need to kind of adjust ourselves to the coronavirus not being the last of these, that we're going to have more of these in the in the years ahead? And how, how do we kind of change the way society works to be able to deal with that? Yeah, everything points to the fact that we will have more pandemics. And why is that? Uh, it is really a synergies, I would say, of uh, increasing population density and population pressure on nature, urbanization, you know, because again, let's not forget that these viruses come from, from other animals. So we need to think not only about following what's going on in people, but also in wild animals, in livestock, the wild uh, life trade, illegal in many cases, climate change, which will also increase the risk for mosquito-transmitted epidemics. So it's actually, to make a very big statement, but our inability to live in harmony with nature. And then we have the mobility. What what used to be a, a local outbreak, you know, let's say 100 years ago, if an outbreak in Wuhan may have reached us at the end of the day, but not in a few weeks' time. All this makes that we need to be much better prepared, and we've got the means to do that. But it means that there is a need for developing that infrastructure. And that's where leadership is also important, because you need to take decisions before you really have a big problem, before people dying in them. And it's not that it's a choice between public health or the economy. Some analysis showed that the countries that have done worst in terms of dealing with this epidemic and have the highest mortality have also had the highest loss in GDP. In, in, so in other words, in economic loss. So it's a false dichotomy. If we don't bring this uh, epidemic under control, forget about the economy. It's as simple as that. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't think carefully whenever measures that we put in place, that we always should look at the economic fallout. And also, you know, this is going to push people into poverty, Epidemics often exacerbate inequalities in society. And that's what's happening also now. So uh, this leadership is uh, part, I think, is, is really key and have the ability to analyze and to act quickly. 
Yeah. Let me ask you one final question, actually, before you go. How did how did actually having the virus yourself, how did that kind of change your understanding of it? Did it, did it make any difference? Yeah, it was... Uh, having had the disease, not just the infection myself, um, I would say makes it not only personal, but also a better understanding what it can mean to people. Because the official communication certainly in these days in the spring was we have to flatten the curve we have to reduce the reproductive rate it was pretty to the ridiculous nearly that prime ministers were giving lectures on uh, the reproductive rate of a virus we have to protect the health services or the nhs in the uk and it was never about people and sometimes as an afterthought you know uh, saving lives so and that i i got really angry about that but also the idea was that most people have either nothing or a bit of the flu and then a few then uh, they die and anyway they're very old and they have underlying conditions and so I'm okay I'm old I'm 71 but I didn't have any underlying conditions you know and it took me about five months to get uh, really over it because with exhaustion I had heart problems I mean this virus invades every single cell of your body and I suspect there will be worldwide millions of people suffering for quite several months. So I wanted to highlight that, and that's a better understanding. And that includes also young people, by the way, because young people, indeed, statistically, the risk of dying is much, much lower, no doubt about it. But that doesn't mean it's a zero. And what we are now learning is that even young people who have a mild infection, mild disease, can have this uh, months and months uh, lingering infection with uh, being very tired, uh, not being able to work, and so on. And that, I think, is still not very well known. And so, and, and I think they should just tell the story, mm. I think, because one of the concerns I have is that COVID fatigue. It's very different when you say, okay, we have lockdown for six weeks or two weeks or three weeks, and then it's over. But now, again, and it's dark, it's not summer, and there is, you know, it could go on for months. So, so we need to think through about communication also for those in power and policymakers and make it a bit more about people and not only about statistics. And then, of course, there is no hope uh, with a vaccine. That was Peter Piot talking to me earlier this week. And now Reem, uh, Matt and Lily are back with some uh, recommendations, uh, lockdown recommendations to help get us through this difficult time when we're spending so much time at home, things to listen to or read or watch. Matt, what have you got? What's your recommendation? It's called Fauda and it's an Israeli series about a counter-terrorism unit that infiltrates Hamas, and uh, it's, it's very good. I can see Reem is already excited about this this pick. Reem is tearing her hair out, there but okay. Several seasons, several seasons of this show, and I recommend watching it in the uh, in the original Hebrew. There's subtitles, so anyway, it gives it a, a much more feel of authenticity. Okay, uh, I, uh, Reem, I think is is probably giving that the thumbs down. So you can choose. The great thing about this uh, format is you can choose whose recommendations to follow and whose you might not want to follow. Reem, what's what's yours this week? I'm taking a break from war and politics and all that is related to work, and I am going to recommend the one, the only Bruce Springsteen in conversation with NPR. 
Um, you should go find it. It's Bruce Springsteen talks loss and hope in Letter to You because oh, it's yeah. his is this new... the one with Steve Inskeep? The interview with yes. Steve Inskeep. Yeah, I've and heard it's that one. it's yeah. his new album, and it's really worth it, and it just yeah. is a balm to the heart. So go for it. I have to see. Yeah, I think that. So I, I was thinking of recommending the Springsteen album. I you know I'm a, I, I'm a Springsteen fan. I would say I would say that this album he almost sounds like a Bruce Springsteen tribute act. You know, I mean there is nothing sort of fresh or new about this, but in some ways that's kind of exactly what you need. You know, you just need Bruce Springsteen blasting out at high volume. I think there's something to be said for it, uh, Lily. Um, so one thing I've been doing during the lockdown is uh, I, I have a goal, which is to read all of Thomas Mann's novels. Um, wow. Yeah, I, I felt like this is the time, the lockdowns, to, to actually get that off my list. Okay, and thank you for raising the tone. And how are, you, how are you doing? Is there one in particular that you'd recommend for us? So uh, during the first lockdown, I finished Budenbrooks, which I, I really loved. And yeah, so I'm, I'm getting through some of the other ones now. It's, it's a bit of a slow process. They're very thick, but it's very rewarding. Okay, and a final recommendation for me would be, it's a, it's a kind of boring one, it's a bit of a must read, uh, many of our listeners will have read it already, but it is a piece that, that Joe Biden wrote, I suspect with a bit of help from his team for foreign affairs uh, earlier this year, it was published in April, Why America Must Lead Again, it basically sets out his foreign policy agenda and I think obviously that's going to be important reading for, for a lot of people as they try to get up to speed with what this new administration is planning in terms of foreign policy. So, Reem, Matt and Lily, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. And that's all the time we have on this episode of EU Confidential. If you haven't yet subscribed to the podcast, we encourage you to stop right now, take a moment and click subscribe or follow on whatever platform you use to listen to us. That will make sure you never miss an episode. And you can always send us feedback or ideas for future shows. The email address is podcast at politico.eu. We read every email and we try to reply to all of them as well, even if it takes us a little while sometimes. Until next week, I'm Andrew Gray in Brussels. Thanks to our producer, Christina Gonzalez, and thanks to you for listening. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hey guys, welcome to Giggly Squad, a place where we make fun of everything, but most importantly, ourselves. I'm Paige DeSorbo. I'm Hannah Burner. Welcome to the squad. Giggly Squad started on Summer House when we were giggling during an inappropriate time. But of course, we can't be managed. So we decided to start this podcast to continue giggling. We will make fun of pop culture news. We're watching fashion trends, pep talks where we give advice, mental health moments, and games and guests. Listen to Giggly Squad on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.